0: Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on pain management. Well,
1: good morning, and thank you all for for being here this morning. Um, today we're going to have um, two different sessions about uses of medications within palliative and hospice care. The first one is lidocaine use in palliative care, uh, and then we'll move on after the next session on to to ketamine. As always, the the hopes is that this would be an interactive session, so if you have questions, uh, if you have comments, uh, the idea is for you to share those uh, with our audience today. My name is Justin Colgren. I am a palliative medicine clinical pharmacist with the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, James Cancer Center. Um, So I look forward to um, spending some time with you today. So what are our goals with today's um, topic? Uh, The objectives here are pretty straightforward, and you'll see I mirror this with ketamine as as well. The idea is to identify what symptoms and conditions can benefit from the utilization or administration of, of lidocaine. Uh, we know lidocaine is a very commonly utilized medication uh, for our patients, and then we want to recommend an appropriate regimen for a patient, um, uh, for a palliative care or hospice patient. So we'll look through a a patient case. What we are not going to do is give you an exact regimen uh, or an exact protocol to follow. I think what what you'll see if you have any experience with this medication is we don't have that level of experience or data to suggest there's only one way to utilize this medication. Okay, So what is more important is to, to come up with what types of patients should I consider utilizing um, in this instance, continuous infusion or bolus infusion of IV uh, lidocaine. And then if there's something you're going to be doing with your patients on a, on a fairly frequent basis, it's probably important that you and your colleagues at your institution come up uh, with a, a policy and protocol that you would like to follow. okay. Um, so as we look at, at lidocaine, uh, lidocaine is a very common medication that has both familiar and unfamiliar uses to us. Historically, we know it's a local anesthetic. It's been around since the, the late 40s. It's also a class 1B antiarrhythmic which tells us, you know, uh, what maybe are some of the concerns we would have with this medication or what kind of patients maybe should we be thinking about caution um, to, to utilize uh, this. in. so uh, when we look at uh, lidocaine, it has been safely used for many uses um, for a very long time for our, our, our patients. When we get into discussion of IV lidocaine, on the other hand, that's, it, it's been utilized um, uh, within palliative care for a good twenty years or so, but we still lack that that gold standard kind of data to tell us how we should utilize it in, in that fashion. So what are some of the possible uses that you might see for your for your patients? Um, cough. Uh, we, you know, you can utilize nebulized lidocaine for um, intractable cough. Uh, that wasn't the focus of today's talk. Um, I, you know, in, in years future, there, there might be more I can add to the presentation about that. But it is, it is a unique use of, of lidocaine? Um, mucositis thinking magic mouth was, was something we've all uh, probably recommended for or written for, for for patients and we'll talk a little bit about that um, when we get into some of the, the oral uh, formulations topical pain um, and lidoderm patch which is the brand um, um, uh 5% lidocaine patch Okay, wound management and I separate those out because though The essence is similar, the use is a little bit different, so. For folks who have uh, wound, oftentimes you can use lidocaine to help them during the the management of of that. And then uncontrolled neuropathic pain, you could add on here uncontrolled cancer pain as well as um, uh, intractable pain as well. But if you're going to rely on any sort of data, what you'll see is the best data would be for uncontrolled neuropathic pain for utilization of of lidocaine infusions. Okay. So this mechanism of action, um, it's believed um, to work through both uh, peripheral, spinal, and supraspinal mechanisms, and not to get um, too detailed. But we know too detailed. We know it's a sodium channel blocker. Right, which is why it can be used as both in, in local anesthetic as well as an antiarrhythmic. Um, when we look at its activity on the peripheral mechanism, it's believed maybe to, to help through its sodium channel blockade to work on some of the, the C activity fibers for, for pain management. Okay, And then it's also believed to have similar actions on the, on the spinal level to help um, to to depress some of those etopic uh, sodium channel um, blocks in when p- posts have uh, really significant pain syndromes. Okay. So pharmacokinetics. Um, and again, pharmacokinetics is a big word that us pharmacists a lot of times throw around to, to try to, s- to sound smart around our, our colleagues. Uh, uh, right? But all pharmacokinetics really means is what is the body doing to the drug? And so why is this important to us as clinicians is what we want to know is um, essentially is, is the absorption of the medication, how is it, uh, with absorption, how quickly is it going to work, how long is it going to work, how is the medication broken down? Um, so, if somebody may have renal or liver impairment, is this drug affected? Or would it affect a patient like, like that? Okay. Uh, and then finally, how's the medication excreted? So, when we look at IV lidocaine, and I focus on that because I think that, that's really where, where the interest lies is within IV lidocaine, is. we see the onset is between 30 and, and 60 minutes when you're utilizing IV lidocaine for pain management. Some, some patients will report it to work within minutes. But on average, if you look for 30 to 60 minutes, it to be about the, the onset. Duration, and this is where you see a lot of different fluctuation with, within literature and experience as well. Some folks will say once the infusion is over, they, they don't have any additional pain relief. You'll see some folks um, usually say within a few hours, so two, three, four hours is the accepted duration of analgesia from IV lidocaine, and then you do have your outliers. You, you have your outliers um, that will last for days, um, and some outliers who will last longer, and you can actually give repetitive lidocaine infusions for long-term treatment. So realistically, what this tells us is, unless you're using this short-term for really acute neuropathic pain, oftentimes this might, can be used as a diagnostic tool. If we have some with really severe pain that we're not responding, and they respond to IV lidocaine infusion, that tells us they have a heavy neuropathic component to their pain syndrome. So maybe we can initiate other neuropathic medications um, to, to help long term. It is heavily metabolized um, by the, by the, the liver. Okay, so there are some risk of um, if there are drugs that affect CYP1A2 or 3A4, they might have an effect on on the metabolism of lidocaine. But again, if we're thinking about the infusion process, it's such a short-term use, drug interactions aren't going to have a large play, but it's something you do want to be aware of. More importantly, if you are using more long-term infusions of lidocaine for pain for several days, you do have to worry about a metabolite. It's got this metabolite on the screen listed for you, um, MEGX or MEGX for for short. This does contribute to the analgesia when, again, you're you're doing a continuous infusion as well as may contribute to toxicity with continuous infusion. So you do want to be aware of this metabolite uh, with with lidocaine. Again, you can hear that the focus is on the, the IV formulation. We'll talk a little more about when we get to to the patches as as, as well. So IV infusions, what, what do we have to worry about side effect wise with with IV in, infusions? Okay, um, you're gonna see a lot of parallels when we get to, um, to to ketamine. Okay, so with IV infusions, you see that there are a lot of side effects, but if you're managing the infusion correctly you don't tend to see a lot of significant or what we would say severe life-threatening side effects. The risk is there. I mean, those of you who who have worked on on teams that are are responding to, you know, codes, you see the utilization of lidocaine. So we know the, the, the risk is there for serious adverse effects. But if you're monitoring appropriately, the risk is low. But what you do want to be aware of, you'll see side effects that are occurring that can make you aware that you're beginning to reach a toxic level. So those that you hear, you see dizziness, somnolence, lightheadedness, imperial or numbness. These all occur within the therapeutic range of lidocaine. Okay, So you'll see various folks um, shoot for different targets with lidocaine, and we'll get there here in, in a minute. So these can be expected. But if you're beginning to see side effects that go beyond this, you begin to worry about am I in a a toxic level. That perioral numbness begins to hit that threshold of where you're beginning to approach maybe a toxic level um, or a a significant systemic level. I I shouldn't use the word toxic, but a significant systemic level that puts you at risk for um, other uh, uh, adverse effects. So topical, talking about the patch, uh, we know that the that's the other one we'll spend some time about. The adverse effects are pretty mild. You can see rash in erythema. Obviously, with any utilization of lidocaine, you want to be aware of that very rare allergic reaction. They're less significant with lidocaine compared to some of your other, your older anesthetic agents, but it's still a risk. Uh, if you if you're going to talk about like the oral formulation, using it with magic mouthwash concerned about it um, causing too much effect in people aspirating or coughing because they can't feel what they're swallowing. Um, so that, that would be a, a consideration as well with, uh, with the uh, oral formulation. Um, and here it is the oral lidocaine we're looking at two to four percent so it comes in a solution as well as a viscous lidocaine which is a, which is a thicker one that, that we're more uh, aware of and you worry about cough and aspiration in fact the, a counseling point is you should be very careful not to eat or chew for sixty minutes after use because again if, if they're swish and swallow or if they swish and spit the idea is they're unable to feel what's, what, what is in their mouth so they even suggest not to not chew gum afterwards for fearing of biting your tongue or injuring your mouth. The other kind of clinical pearl that I've come across with lidocaine when you often see it utilize a magic mouthwash is being very careful what ingredients you put in with lidocaine in magic mouthwash. You'll see some prescribers try to do the patient a favor from an adherence or compliance standpoint and if they happen to have a concomitant fungal infection, they'll mix in Nystatin with lidocaine. Practically what I have seen is when the patients start feeling better, what do they do? They stop utilizing the, that combination based product. So even though it sounds nice and makes it convenient for your patient, I would always separate Nystatin out because after they start feeling better, we still want them to utilize Nystatin for so many days after the infection clears. Right, so separate those two out just for fear of patients making sure they get the adequate utilization of, of their Nystatin in, in those products. Okay. So as we think about lidocaine again generally, and we're going to be monitoring it, so if we're thinking about utilization, I, I fall back on whatever medication I'm considering as a pharmacist. I fall back to two pillars, efficacy and safety. When I am considering developing a monitoring plan for my patient, how do I know this is working and how do I know this is safe? All right, the, these, are, these are the cornerstones for any pharmacological um, therapy consideration for our patients. So efficacy. When do we assess? Like, how frequently should we assess um, utilization of IV ketamine and and that's or IV lidocaine, sorry, or or the patch? Well, it depends upon which form you're utilizing, right? So if we if we think about uh, continuous infusion lidocaine, uh, what you see is these these incremental changes in how you would um, assess somebody or when you would assess somebody. If you're using a lidocaine infusion, you typically see for the first hour every 15 minutes. After the first hour, um, and you would do every 15 minutes for four times for the first hour, then you would see hourly times four times, and then you would go to every four hours while the fusion is running. So you kind of you step back in in the how frequently, but you start off infu- uh, monitoring the patient very frequently every 15 minutes for the first hour and then hourly for, the, for an additional four hours and every four hours after that. Well, with a patch, obviously, we know with utilization or with the mechanism of the drug, it would take a lot longer for the drug to work. So you're not going to monitor the patient um, anywhere near as, as frequent. You're going to be looking for, again, what's the goal of these medications? Ultimately, the goal is to improve their pain and hopefully their functionality. But like we talked about, with with our available literature and data with IV um, lidocaine, we know the effect is quite short for most of our patients, several hours at best. So um, besides dealing with that actively dying hospice patient where you might do a continuous lidocaine infusion, you, you might be focusing a lot on that, that improvement and pain score and again that will help you understand that maybe a large component of my patient's pain is neuropathic in nature so what it might do is help you shift your plan down a different pathway what what am I going to do in addition to lidocaine because if it's working well oftentimes benefits are short term unless you're doing a continuous long term infusion which we don't have a lot of experience and data with to support that you have to think about what's the next step safety like we talked about side effects Side effects are expected, but you want to monitor them very frequently because if you begin to climb into um, having more significant side effects with lidocaine, passes that are expected, that's telling us that maybe we're approaching a lidocaine level that would be too high. Okay, So looking at heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, and lidocaine levels are very much um, within reason uh, with this medication. Okay, um, And there are some recommendations that if you are monitoring lidocaine and they begin to experience some of these more toxic based levels Some people suggest that you stop the infusion, you wait a while and see if the symptoms improve, and then initiate at a lower dose. Other folks say just stop it and and move on to something else if if they're they're not tolerating it. So a lot of cane levels can be monitored at at most large institutions, um, and that target range is going to vary um, for what you're looking for. the target range for many people is, is going to be like a, a, a 1 to 5 in, in that 1 to 5 kind of range with, with, with lidocaine. Okay. So with your um, injectable formulation, uh, that is widely available and can be used. If, you're, if you don't have a protocol available within your hospital, palliative care unit, hospice, um, again, you may want to develop one because those who are dispensing it, administering it, aren't going to be familiar with this utilization of, of lidocaine. Okay, the other products that are readily available are the oil solution, as well as the viscous solution, and then a lot of different uh, uh, formulations. And then nebulized. Oftentimes, you would use the IV formulation and, and nebulize that uh, for the um, if you want to use that for for cough. So, patient selection. So, how do we know when should we ultimately like was the question when should we use this? Right? And I go back to thinking about safety and efficacy. Um, when would I expect this to work? And, and more importantly, when would it be safe to utilize? If we're talking again about IV administration, I think we feel pretty comfortable of winning selecting a patient for um, wound management as well as oral mucositis. Uh, th- th- those, are, those are more. Um, Common to us, so for looking at using this for systemic analgesia, more often than not, you're going to see a benefit when folks are having acute pain. Now they might have a, a background of chronic pain, but if their acute pain is now flaring, you, you you can see success, more success when dealing with acute pain. Again, you're going to see this mirror very frequently what we see with ketamine and, and at the next hour. So neuropathic pain, there's it is suggests it's going to be more effective for neuropathic pain than nociceptive pain. Though there are case reports and suggestions that it might work for nociceptive pain as well, but most of it's going to be for, for neuropathic pain. Maybe that allodynia syndrome um, uh, as well, and that's that, that that sunburn sensitivity kind of pain. So, When you have escalating pain that's not responding to opioids very well, we've ruled out psychological pain um, and you've gotten through um, oftentimes you're probably going to get you're going to go through oftentimes ketamine prior to getting to lidocaine unless there's a strict contraindication to, to ketamine so getting to, to lidocaine is typically a, a stepwise process it's not first line, it's not second line it might not be third line in your institution okay but an escalating pain, very poor response or it's just not making sense um, but especially what um, we've had some experience with is, is and those pain syndromes where it, you wouldn't suspect it to be neuropathic in nature and then we come find out maybe there's some sort of tra- entrapment sort of syndrome that's causing neuropathic pain that we wouldn't have known about and so it's, again it's been that, that, that diagnostic feature where it helps us understand how we shift our, our plan of care okay and the key is benefits are going to be oftentimes short-term um, lasting several hours at best after the end of, of the infusion Okay, Who do we want to be cautious with in its, in its use um, and what we're looking at again, this is that pharmacokinetics. Uh, we want to be just careful in renal insufficiency to make sure that we're excreting that, that metabolite. Cardiac dysfunction, again we know it's a sodium channel blockade, right, so it can have those effects on folks with, with heart disease. And then since it's heav- heavily metabolized by the liver, we know in a dysfunction. And what you see it's caution here, right. There's not a strict contraindication. And again, you have to look at your patient and and what is that that risk and benefit ratio. As we know in palliative care, when we're looking at our therapies, goals and prognosis drive all of our decision-making process, right? So how much risk are we willing to consider for the benefit that our patients will be receiving, okay? So as we go and look at our patches here, so the the commercially available lidoderm 5% patch is a lidocaine 5% medication. And what we have on here are just some helpful points for, to remind you and to, as you're talking with your patients if you're considering utilizing this. So you want to apply the patch directly to the most painful area. Okay, uh, you're not going to be utilizing more than three patches at, at once. Well, we're not going to be knitting a lidocaine patch sweater or anything where they're going to be wrapping around their whole body, right? That also increases risk for absorption. Um, and it says, if you look at the packaging insert, it says may remain in place for up to 12 hours in a 24-hour period. We know for some of our hospice patients, there there is experience, not great data, experience to suggest you can leave it in place longer up to 18 hours, some, some suggest a little bit longer. Do you see a little bit of a waning effect post 12 hours? You might, Okay, but you might be able to stretch those patches a little bit longer in, in those. So the medication works where it is applied. You do not get enough systemic absorption to see a systemic effect traditionally. Okay, uh, Patches can be cut to appropriate size. Right, so unlike fentanyl, you don't want to be manipulating fentanyl patches, lidocaine is okay to cut the patches to the size um, that you need. The effects start um, in hours, and it can take several days up to a week to see the full effect. So if you're utilizing this, and typically with patch, uh, the lidocaine patch, you're thinking about neuropathic pain that is specific to an area. Um, You don't want somebody who says, I've got neuropathic pain, you know, maybe they've got some brachial plexus neuropathy, right, which we know is a really bad pain syndrome, but starts here, terrific, and shoots all the way down their fingers. Uh, Not likely to be effective for that. You want somebody who can tell you, I've got really significant pain right here and, you're, and it's maybe neuropathic in nature where the best success is when they put that patch right where that is, is located. So you would think like a somatic kind of origin with a neuropathic kind of component. Okay? Um, and then realizing when you're assessing that patient if they tell you after the first patch or two it's not working as well as they would have hoped well that's okay let's give it you know up to a week. And the other thing is expectations. Right when we're using adjuvant medications for our pain, what's the expectation? How much should this be reducing the pain? Many patients think you're going to put it on and the pain's going to go away. That is n- that is not the, not not the case. If you're getting a 20 to 30 percent reduction, um, you might be seeing a significant reduction in pain, and that's what what you could be at best expecting with these with these patches. Okay. Avoid exposing heat. Any patch, it's a bad to avoid heat because heat's going to increase absorption and increase risk for toxicity. Also important for those in, in those in the palliative world, also in hospitals, but more palliative, who your folks are still um, receiving different types of scans. With MRI scans, they need to remove that patch for a cause of burns. So if they're getting scans, you want them to take that patch off less than five percent of that patch is absorbed um, and if you look at again, what available evidence we have that number is with up to three patches at a time. With one patch it's, it's even less. It could be less than three percent even for, for one patch. So you're not going to get great systemic absorption. It's going to work where you put the patch. Then as we know it can be very expensive um, and this is something that uh, it 's uh, been reemphasized to me with this shift as we 're seeing it with our opioids, is we 're seeing formulas our insurances tell us it 's on formulary, but guess what it 's a percent copay of a formulary. So even though they say it's formulary, it's still costing them $50 or $100 because they have to pay a percent cost of the drug. So be careful even if you hear it's on formulary. It still might be quite expensive for your patients. So there are other dosage forms, or the creams, or the gels, or the ointments that you may consider um, as well as as a a substitution. So questions about the the lidoderm, um, which is lidocaine, 5% patch. Okay, so I waited not quite 10 seconds, but long enough, right? (laughs) So, all right, good moving on to looking at systemic pain, the, the, the IV dose. So, and this is where you begin to see a lot of differences And how do I do this. This is why I suggest if, you, if you're going to be utilizing this, sit down with your colleagues and develop a protocol because there's not a lot of consistency in how it's done. So you can see the IV infusion can be started between one and three milligrams per kilogram per hour. Some folks suggest just giving a flat rate dose. Give. X amount of milligrams, just give 100 milligrams and see, give 300 milligrams, give 500 milligrams. So there's a lot of different ways you can read in literature to suggest giving it. This is probably the most common, is that range of one to three milligrams per kilogram per hour um, to infuse it. Uh, Some will suggest when you get the very high doses, making sure you infuse maybe even more than over an hour to reduce risk of toxicity. So as we monitor um, IV lidocaine, again, there are two approaches. Some folks will monitor levels because they say I'm shooting for a level that I'm okay with anything less than, you know, a target level of four, right? Whereas others might say I'm shooting for a therapeutic range between three and five. Again, that's why I say I couldn't give you a specific protocol to utilize because everyone does things just a little differently. Okay, and that's why we have need for continual publication of of, of well-controlled studies with, with lidocaine. Time to effect, again, minutes to to hours. Again, that assessment piece we talked about should be occurring early and often, every 15 minutes for the first hour, every hour for four hours afterwards, and every four hours. Time to peak again is going to be minutes to two hours. Then how do we assess that benefit? Thinking about pain reduction is going to be a very good um, utilization. When I think about assessing pain in patients, uh, I'm of the camp. I tend not to use a lot of pain scores because they're very misleading in our patients. But with lidocaine, I do use pain scores because it's such an acute effect. I really want to know what, what was, what is, how much did, did we see. Opioid dose reduction, there is some belief, again this will share some parallels with ketamine. If you see a response, you might consider prophylactically cutting down their their opioid doses. Again, there's not consistency whether you should or shouldn't, but if you're seeing it be effective, maybe you consider cutting down um, the opioid dose. Improved functionality, so if you're using this Uh, IV continuous or you're doing intermittent infusions every so often ensuring that that you're actually improving the functionality of that patient. That's the end goal, right? Uh, The pain score is that surrogate marker. The clinical goal is the functionality of their patient is it improving their overall well-being. And we've already hit home that these these infusions can be diagnostic in nature. They can help you understand the components, the types of pain our patients might be uh, experiencing. Some advocate transitioning to an, an oral sodium channel blocker um, if the IV is effective. Uh, if you look at case reports, again, you're talking of case reports of right around 20 or less patients who transition to oral sodium channel blockers. Other folks just transition to neuropathic pain agents. So we don't know if it is the sodium channel blockade that is working, or if it's the fact that we've just finally. T- Target neuropathic pain appropriately. That's the cause of the success of, of of the medication. Okay. So, is lidocaine worth all the hype? Ultimately, um, it's up to you to make that de- determination. The effect seen in studies is quite small, about a one point difference in a ten point scale. And, and I do want to point out, though, what the authors suggest these studies are. They are looking at this and evoked pain syndromes, so what does that mean? We're the one, in this study, causing the pain. So the those who have done this suggest in spontaneous pain, which is what we are seeing, right, pain caused by the disease that is spontaneous, that there is a greater response in spontaneous pain. And experience su- suggest a greater response in pain than this one point difference we see in the studies. Okay? And there are some that suggest that um, there was one study of a—it a, was again a small number of 20, 30 patients—that suggest that suggested right around 20% saw their pain go completely away. I myself have not seen that response with lidocaine before. They said right around one third saw about a 50% reduction in pain while the infusion was going, which is about, I've seen with that range, and then the other third saw right around a 20-30% to pain reduction. So all patients saw a response in this one study, right? Um, Most others report a very, very, very small difference, okay? So many patients report a difference so that the magnitude of response is small. Side effects are real, though very rarely serious when we're monitoring and watching our patients closely. So you have to determine whether it's worth the hype. I think if you read a lot of the reviews that have been published in case reports, I think the idea is, again, we're looking at a third or fourth line option in, in many cases, but it's important to have in our back pocket, right? And again, you've heard me stress enough, this is something you should probably sit down with your team and develop a plan before that patient walks in the door, right? Because in my experience has been oh yeah I learned about this new drug and then all of a sudden by the time we want to go use it the patient's standing in front of us and, and it's best to have that plane laid out before, beforehand. Um, and, and if you have questions, my email is at the end I'm, I'm definitely happy to set up a time to talk with you if need be to go through some more of, of the details. So again, mexelatine some of you may have, have either seen it on patient profiles, heard about it read about it in, in textbooks. Mexelatine is an oral analog Essentially, of, of lidocaine, it's a class one, one anti, B antiarrhythmic, and also um, is, a, is a dependent use sodium channel blocker. Okay, so some people propose if lidocaine works, we switch it to mexiletine. Okay, and I can tell you, mexiletine. The downside is we don't have enough high quality studies to know if it works well. The studies that we have suggested that it might work. The downside with mixelatine is patients have a hard time tolerating the commercially available doses. So you'll see 150 milligram capsules the most commonly found commercially available dose. It would be twice a day. Those who have had success with mixelatine will have it compounded at a pharmacy at lower capsule doses and have it titrated up over time. So, it's really no different than our classic adjuvant analgesics that we started at a low dose and titrated up anyway. Okay. So, efficacy may or may not be there. There is much, much less efficacy data for mixelatine than there is with our calcium channel ligands, which are gabapentin and pregabalin, our TCA antidepressants, amitriptyline, cypraminotriptyline, and our SNRIs, duloxetine, and venlafaxine. So, I'm not telling you that mixelatine is ineffective. What I'm telling you is we don't have as much data as with our other, other agents. But we do know that it's hard for patients to, to tolerate, so if you're going to use it, you may consider having a local pharmacy compound capsules for you initially, and titrate the dose up slowly like you would with your other adjuvants for neuropathic pain. So let's go through a uh, patient case together, okay? 56-year-old male needs treatment for severe neuropathic pain. Metastatic lung cancer to, um, to spine. His prognosis is weeks in nature, so whether we're in the inpatient palliative care unit, inpatient hospice, maybe the patient's at home. Has histories of hypertension and, and COPD. So no known drug allergies. Is currently on a hydromorphone CAD, right? CAD is that continuous animatory drug delivery device. It's essentially equivalent to a PCA, but much smaller. So those from the hospice field know oftentimes we use CATS because patients can put a little strap on it and walk around with it. So you see it more commonly utilized, it makes patients more functional. That's why it's called continuous ambulatory. The idea is patients can be ambulatory with it. Okay. So all this is saying is this is saying they're getting six milligrams an hour, continuous, with three milligram bowls every fifteen minutes. So it tells us what about the patient's pain. It's severe pain, right? We're just, just saying that. out, And we're not going down this road. Are they neurotoxic? That's not the pathway we're necessarily going down. So in Haloperidol, they have some prednisone and uh, albuterol nebulizers, PRN. So the question is, is lidocaine infusion, is this a consideration in, the, in this patient? Is this something we, we would consider for him? So, uh, for those who are, are watching us, the, the audience is shaking their head. Yes, this is a consideration. All right. So, is there anything we would want to do beforehand, or even consider prior to the use of lidocaine? So, I think the thought here is uh, lidocaine is definitely an option of fusion. You could argue, what do we try ketamine first? And I think you, you could easily say ketamine would be a consideration as well. So let's say we've gone down the, the, the road. Let's just say the patient's tried ketamine without much success. We have decided that based upon the mechanism of the medication that we feel like it's worthy to try lidocaine in, in this patient. Is it safe to utilize lidocaine infusion in this patient? So what were our cautionary tales? Good. So we're, uh, good. So from from the audience, the cautionary tales are the, the renal impairment, the liver impairment, and cardiac impairment. Right? And that seems to be like if you are ever guessing, those are always good, good to guess, right? Who do caution in? That's kind of always a cautionary tale, right? But I mean, we had, didn't have really strict contraindications, right? The, the idea is oh, oh, the assessing risk and benefit. And this patient with weeks left to live with this severe pain, significant hydromorphone doses, hydromorphone a failed ketamine is lidocaine worth a try? The answer is yes. So the question is, is, how would we dose it? That's a loaded question, right? Because I didn't give you a strict answer, and you shouldn't have a strict answer. The idea is this: you would have a protocol in place, somewhere between one and three milligrams per kilogram, right, per hour, and you would, you would watch very closely after that. So the idea is, if this is effective, if lidocaine is effective for this patient, what's our next step? Now what?
0: Mm-hmm. We can't send him home on that. So we need to have
1: a discharge plan. So what are we going to transition to when we discharge him? So the, the the comment from the audience was, "What is the discharge plan? How do we transition them home? Is this somebody that we might?" consider bringing be, bring back in with a week's prognosis is there a way to transport them back in and, re, and maybe receive intermittent iv infusions because their prognosis is so short because with weeks what do we do we anticipate that our adjuvant analgesics are going to be effective we're not going to likely to see the benefit that we are does this maybe turn us to considering methadone for pain management, or using methadone as a coanalgesic agent in this circumstance. So we, knowing that the effect of lidocaine is often short, if you're going to use it, then that's not the end point. That should be just a step in the process, so if you're considering utilizing lidocaine infusions, you should always have a next plan prepared. Again, And there's not necessarily a right answer for this patient, but thinking ahead of, of what's next. okay. So summary, there are many different uses, common uses for for lidocaine. We talked about the patch for very specific localized neuropathic pain, the lidocaine uh, solution or viscous lidocaine for oral mucositis, wound management, IV infusions well for for severe pain, oftentimes neuropathic in nature. Requires careful patient selection, requires careful planning. Again, responses to IV lidocaine are usually short-term and considered alternative plans for long-term use if effective. Okay. So I open it up now. I thank you and open up for, for questions. So, yep, question. Are there other, other than maxillotine, are there other oral sodium channel blockers that have been shown to be helpful or are in use? Okay, so the question is, are there other sodium channel, oral sodium channel blockers that are in play, in use, for um, pa- patients who respond well to um, lidocaine? There are no... That I'm aware of, there's no nothing commercially available that is as similar to lidocaine as mexiletine is. We do have some anti-epileptic drugs that work through some sodium channel blockade, so again, you might go down that pathway. You might consider where okay, we might not use something like clomotrine right off the bat, or some of those other antileptics right off the bat. But if they respond well to lidocaine, maybe we consider some of those secondary adjuvant drugs right off right off the bat. It's a good question. Other other questions?
0: If you're starting lidocaine and methadone almost simultaneously,
1: do you need to do suggest like as the methadone? So the, the question is um, if you're going to be utilizing IV infusion lidocaine as well as methadone at the same time, how do we approach that scenario, right? Because we know that there's both concerns with their effect on, on cardiac tissue. Um, and that's a great question. And I think again, very dependent upon the clinical scenario. If if this were me making a recommendation to my team, I would say let's work with IV infusional ligaments. We know it's short-term. We're looking at hours, maybe a day or two, and then let's hold off until we see the response before starting methadone unless we're dealing with a very, very low dose methadone where we know the risks for any sort of arrhythmia are going to be very low anyway that would be the way I would approach that scenario. I would approach it as let's see how lidocaine works, let's see how effective it is, let's put methadone on the back because we're only talking hours, day or two anyway and then once we're finished with the lidocaine, I hate to use the word experiment then we can we can fold the methadone at that point in time. But if you're talking about you very low doses, maybe that's something you have at the same time, but you might, you're going to be watching your patient very closely. Okay, so good question. Anything else? All right, thank you. Thank
0: you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends so you don't miss any of our new content. Make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PALMED, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC Curriculum.